So before we jump into today's text, I'm going to offer a little editorial comment about our current Christian culture. I think it's been made clear throughout the book of Revelation that, that uh, Satan is going to use oppressive governments and false teachers towards his own ends. And that has been true throughout time. It will continue to be through until the end of time. And his own ends are ultimately to lead people, even force people, away from belief in God and away from faith in Christ. And we know that his efforts are going to become more pronounced as the day of judgment draws near. Which means that as the church, I think we need to be increasingly vigilant and discerning in how we are living out our faith. Over the last month or so, I've seen a number of social media ads, I've, I've heard discussions, I've been asked about some different upcoming Christian conferences. Christian conferences. Um, they're either in person or they're streaming or some combination of the two. And conferences can be great. They can give us a nice little spiritual boost. You know, it's kind of like when you went to church camp as a kid. You came back and you're all enthusiastic for about two and a half weeks and then life just kicked in. And Conferences can be, can be like that, but they can also be used to mislead and misdirect it even, even just a little bit, even change our trajectory just a little bit. So I just want to say, if, if, if you're planning on attending a Christian conference or even a Bible study of any kind, do some due diligence. Find out who the speakers are. Look them up. Who's the author of the book you're going to study? What are they about? Who do they associate with? Are they promoting some new way of understanding or interpreting something? I mean, we can't just assume that because something is promoted as Christian or promoted by a church or even by people that we like who are otherwise well-meaning, it doesn't mean it's theologically sound. Our goal here is to teach scripture, to teach truth, so we can more easily spot lies and deceptions. I think the Bible is clear that as, as elders, as leaders, we are going to be held accountable for you, for your spiritual maturity in this church. And so that's our job, is to try to teach truth so that you can more easily spot lies and deceptions. Now, it's not all bad. I'm not saying that. There are good conferences. There are good teachers. But there's a lot of slippery slope stuff out there right now. And it will continue. Just do your research. Figure out who you're going to see and why you're going to see them. And what, what's surprising to me is a number of ads that I've seen, social media ads, tell you about this great conference and the day and the time and the cost, and they provide no information as to who the speakers are or what it's about. That should be a red flag. What are they trying to get me to see? Maybe I should check it out. And it's all, not all, but a lot of it's meant to just start to ease us away from historical, biblical truth. Okay, I got that off my chest. I feel so much better now. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the easy stuff. Revelation 19. Father God, we thank you for the chance to gather together this morning. And uh, Lord, I, I think if anything, Revelation should show us that if we're not at the end, we're certainly closer than we've ever been. And as we get closer to the end, I think the the enemy becomes more desperate. The lies get um, bigger, bolder, um, and also more prolific. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to be 
vigilant. We need to be discerning uh, in how we absorb and consume culture, even if it's Christian culture. Lord, help us, uh, help us see lies from the truth. Help us spot deception. Uh, and, and then I pray that you help us um, as individuals, as, as members of this body, help us help others. Help them see uh, where the lies and the deception are. Um, and I, we need to be equipped. We need to be um, infused by your grace. We need to be emboldened by the Holy Spirit and able to do all those things. So, Lord, continue to build us up. Continue to encourage us. To continue to give us wisdom about your word and what we find here. We pray that you open our, our hearts and our ears and our minds this morning to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Period. The prayer is over. Now, we've been on a bit of a tear here recently, zipping, zipping right through the book of Revelation in less than a year. Yeah. Uh, but we, we've, we've been trying to be, you know, mindful of uh, keeping the plot moving. We, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. So we, we've tried to, to go through it at a, at a reasonable pace, um, keeping the story in view. And there are so many areas where we could spend a whole lot more time, entire series of sermons on other topics. If we were doing a seminary level class, we would do that because that's really fun. But our focus has been on what does the text actually say? What is this story in Revelation telling us? What does it mean for us? I mean, in, in broad strokes, we are now well aware that we live in a sinful, fallen world. We know that a good and gracious God has provided an escape plan for us out of this doomed world for those who choose to receive it. And the plan, this escape plan, is based entirely on accepting Jesus' death as having satisfied the penalty that we owe. And then walking by faith, working out our faith with fear and trembling. So trust and faith in Christ means salvation from the eternal consequences of our sin. And there are those who will accept this gift of grace and choose to live a life that is pleasing to God. And there are those who reject and refuse God's offer. So we've been pointing this out all the way through. Revelation tells us there are two classes, two groups of people. Those who accept Jesus' gift of salvation and those who reject it. And we're seeing how this plays out over time throughout Revelation. Over the last few weeks, we, we've read about how the earth dwellers, those who've rejected God, they're going to be destroyed. They're, they're destined to live uh, in eternity of, of punishment and torment based on a choice they made. And we've read how those who put their trust and faith in Jesus are going to be rewarded. I mean, last week we talked about a wedding feast. We're going to be rewarded with, with a great meal, with actual real wine. Uh, given a wardrobe that represents righteousness and purity. And as we get into the, the latter chapters of the book, we get more details on the eternal outcomes for both of these groups. But whichever group we happen to be in, the fact remains, the world is and will remain a hard, difficult place with many struggles. But because the Lord made it, it's also a world with many joys and many blessings. So we have things that we are required to persevere and things that inspire present and future hope. So we keep all of this in mind as we get into some of the more interesting imagery found in this book, because it's been kind of boring up until now. And what we're going to see is, is we're getting into the closing scenes of history here. It's, it's the culmination, the fulfillment for all of Scripture. And the imagery, the symbolism that comes up, is, it's deep and it's wide. 
It's connecting numerous dots on numerous levels. And it's all confirming for us that God is in control. His will is being enacted exactly as he predetermined it. We should find some comfort in that. So let's pick back up in chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We made it as far as one verse before we have to stop and dig into this. So John sees heaven opened. And I really found this interesting because it tells us absolutely nothing about what his vantage point is. Is John in heaven and now they're looking out? Or is he out of heaven? Is he looking in? Is he like hovering above it all? We just don't know. But our sense is that space and time don't really matter. Heaven is opened and John sees a white horse. And it's universally true that white is the color of victory. Anyone who has ever seen a western will know that the good guy always wears the white hat and often rides a white horse. But there's scripture to actually back this up. Back in chapter 2, in the letter to Pergamum, it closed with a promise. It said, To the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone. The color white is associated with the conquerors. Nine times throughout Revelation, white is the color of the robes or the garments of the redeemed. And, of course, we remember the first of the four horses introduced in the seal judgments was a white horse. And it said that white horse came out conquering and to conquer. We also discussed the possibility that that white horse was symbolic of false teachers or antichrists. And they did conquer. They were victorious for a while. They lured people away from the true Christ. That white horse was symbolic of victory, even if it was short-lived. But this white horse is different because of the one who sits on it. We're told that the one sitting on this white horse is called Faithful and True. Capital letters, like a a proper name. Rather than using an actual name like Jesus, for example, it says the rider of the horse is Faithful and True. Now right away this highlights for us that this rider is not an antichrist spreading lies. This writer is not just telling truth. This writer is truth. He is faithfulness. He embodies these qualities. So without using the name Jesus, we're being shown, clearly I think, that the writer here is Jesus. And let's not miss what I think is a really interesting contrast between Jesus, the conqueror, astride this magnificent white horse, a symbol of kings, a symbol of war and victory. There's that Jesus, and then there is Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The horse is a symbol of war and victory. The donkey is a symbol of peace and humility. Jesus on the donkey foreshadowed Jesus on the horse. That Jesus on the donkey was setting the stage. He was pointing the way to this Jesus. And both animals were perfectly suited for the role Christ played in that moment. And so here he is now astride the white horse. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's connected to the 
to the faithful and true part. Over and over in Scripture, the Lord promises that he will eventually set everything right. He will punish the evildoers. He will vindicate his people. We see it in Psalm 9. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. So Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of everything that's being described here. All of the promises throughout time and throughout Scripture, all these promises are now being fulfilled on behalf of the redeemed. And this idea of judging, it is a, it's a judicial action. It's deciding right and wrong. It's a legal correction. Jesus is going to make all wrongs right. Even if it means war against the forces of darkness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. So now we get more imagery and symbolism, apocalyptic imagery too, thrown at us. And it's a lot of which you probably remember seeing before or hearing before as we read through this book. Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire, for example. We first heard that description way back in the first chapter. John has his initial vision of Jesus standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and it said he, his hair was white and his eyes were like a flame of fire. We have the same description here. Another confirmation point that this writer is Jesus. The Son of Man. On his head, it's described as having many diadems. And we've heard about diadems before. Back in chapters 12 and 13, the diadems we read about were on the head of the dragons, and the dragon and the beast. And a diadem is a crown. It's a picture of authority. It's a picture of sovereignty both of which the dragon and the beast enjoyed for a while. They had sovereignty. They had authority, they thought. They had as much as God allowed them to have. And now their time is up. Jesus on the white horse is here to reclaim all authority and all sovereignty. He is wearing all of the crowns. But he also has a name written that no one knows but himself. We'll get to that in a little bit. But just a few verses into the text here, in this short section, we're only two verses in, and we already see Jesus as the conqueror, we see Jesus as a war general, Jesus as a judge, and Jesus as the word of God. And this name that's not yet revealed. And there's a lot of speculation as to what this means. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through all the various possibilities. I just find this idea of a, of a, of a name that we don't know kind of interesting, because if you think back through, through Scripture, there's a, there's a long history of name changes in the Bible. So is this name not yet named? Is it, is it something new that we're, it's going to be unveiled at some point? I don't know. I mean, Saul became Paul. Abram became Abraham, right? Sarai became Sarah. I reckon this name that's not yet revealed will become obvious to everybody when the ultimate final consummation of God's plan is set. When all the forces of evil have been vanquished, when the, when the new Jerusalem has been established, 
<clears throat> excuse me, then this, I think this unknown name is going to be revealed and we're all going to go, oh, of course. That's perfect. But I don't know, I'm just speculating there. We're, just not, we're not told, we just don't know what this name is. But it says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, there are a lot of hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament references throughout the book of Revelation. We're going to see several more today. Here's another one. Isaiah 63 says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with, with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I mean, this is pretty clearly a scene of judgment here of some kind. And this confirms, and I think we'll, we'll revisit this verse a little later too, that this divine warrior here is seeking vengeance and redemption on behalf of his people. That's what we're reading in chapter 19, and it's going to get messy. It's going to be ugly. And then we read the name by which he's called is the word of God. Now, some suggest that this answers that previous hidden name. Which really doesn't make any logical sense. Why it would say in one verse there's going to be a hidden name, and the next verse it says, oh, but here it is. I think these are two separate things. So we're going to ignore that idea that this answers that first question. But the idea here of the name of the word of God, it really incorporates a number of things. We know from the, last, from the text last week that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy was often introduced as, here's the word of God. Here's the word of the Lord. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. We read last week that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all, it's all about Jesus. We know that John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. We've already been told that this writer is called faithful and true, as is God's word. I mean, this, again, this is all painting a picture for us. Without saying the name Jesus, they're coming up with all kinds of different descriptions telling us this is Jesus on the white horse. And the time is at hand for Jesus' execution of final judgment. He is about to initiate God's will, and this has been the plan from before creation. Let me get to the next few verses. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Well, now the vision expands a little bit. John's gone from just describing this solo writer. Now John sees an army. Actually, he says, armies. Armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following on white horses. Now, this is another one of those sections where people have lots of ideas what this must mean. Um, some suggest that this armies refers to angelic forces. And one of the reasons they give for this, they go back to Matthew 13, and it, Jesus is, is giving the parable of uh, the weeds among the grain and how the harvest is going to separate them out. 
It's a, it's a parable of the end times. And Matthew 13 says, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So some say, well, those, those angels from Matthew 13, this has to be the force of angels in Revelation 19. Or Mark 8 talks about the Son of Man when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels, it says. So again, some link these two sections, say these armies of heaven, that they must refer to warrior angels. I don't think that's quite right. I think that misses the symbolic connections here. We're in the midst of this really dramatic imagery and symbolism. Uh, in, in Revelation 17, 14, the text there is about the beast and the king's and the kingdoms who followed the beast. And it says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. The same phrase we saw in, this, in chapter 19. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Called and chosen and faithful. Now, if you were here last week, and you managed to stay awake all the way through, you know that the saints, uh, the, the church, the redeemed, the 144,000, all describing the same group of people, they're referred to as chosen or called. It's the chosen, called, faithful who are rewarded and referred to as the bride of Christ. It's the church. It's describing Christians, believers from throughout the ages. And we read last week that this bride has been granted or given robes of linen, bright and pure, and her fine linen represents her righteous deeds. And here we read, the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linens, white and pure. This seems like a pretty easy dot to connect. I think it's intended to be fairly easy to connect, but sometimes we dig too deep and we miss the obvious stuff. So what I find really fascinating about this is in this same chapter 19, we have an array of imagery here for the chosen and faithful. The assembled mass of saints, the believers from throughout the ages, are described as a bride on her wedding day in last week's text. And here, believers are the conquering armies of heaven. Decked out in fine linen, riding white horses in support of our king. So we get to be finally decked out wedding participants and fierce warriors without a single wardrobe change. We're all decked out in our fine linens. Wedding participants, armies. Now, what is the popular cultural conception of what heaven's going to be like? Oh, right, we're kicking back on clouds and playing harps. That is not this. And the redeemed we saw last week, they all gathered together to worship the king, and here we, we gather to rally around in support of the king on the field of the battle. This is pretty amazing, the role we play in this. And then we get another picture from the rider on the horse. The slide says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
So in this short description, there are at least four significant Old Testament allusions. This is, this is tying up all of history for us. It's all coming together in these final chapters. It's, again, this just serves to remind us that what's transpiring here at the end of the age is what God has ordained from before creation. So the reference to the sharp sword comes from Isaiah 49. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This chapter, Isaiah 49, is about the coming Messiah and the restoration of God's chosen people. It is contextually accurate. This is not just some random verse that uses the word sword. This is a verse about the coming Messiah, and it uses the idea of his mouth like a sharp sword. Same picture we have here. But we also saw in the very first chapter of Revelation, that original vision that, that uh, John had of Jesus, it said, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We saw again in Revelation 2.16, the letter to Pergamum, it says at the end, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We're seeing a, a consistent and powerful image of judgment against the unrepentant, brought on by Jesus. It's often portrayed as a sword, and it's specifically a sword from the mouth of Jesus. Well, then I have highlighted there that, that phrase, strike down, strike down the nations. That likely refers to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked another depiction of judgment now the, the fuller context here in this chapter it's a comparison God is describing how the branch of Jesse how Israel how his chosen people are going to go on and bear much fruit and then we get to this part the wicked the unrepentant are going to be struck down Again, this is contextually accurate with what we're reading in Revelation 19. Well, the next phrase that comes up is a rod of iron. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Hard to miss the sense of judgment in that one. But the fuller context, the bigger picture says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This whole chapter is about the reign, the coming reign of Jesus. And it talks about how there are going to be two classes of people, two outcomes at the end, the redeemed versus the unrepentant. But we also saw this term, this rod of iron, back in chapter 12. There was the vision of the woman and the dragon. And verse 5 in chapter 12 said, She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's an obvious allusion to Jesus. So here's another dot that's connected. Rider on the horse is Jesus. And then finally we get the imagery of the winepress here. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is, I think, a fairly alarming depiction of the true and final judgment. I mean, now we're at the end where the Lord says, all right, Babylon, enough. Babylon has fallen. When the Lord declares that there's no human left 
who will yield his will to the Lord's will. When everybody is unrepentant, the whole world will remain un un unrepentant. Judgment will come. Isaiah 63 is likely in mind here. This is what we read earlier. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now, most of us here probably know how a wine press works, or a cider press, maybe. It compresses, and it smashes, and it squeezes everything out till there's nothing left but pulp. And what's now done by mostly hydraulic machinery was once done by foots. People jumped in the vats and they tromped around and they swashed the grapes and it was messy and whatever you were wearing got some splatter. This is a picture of extreme judgment when it's directed at people. The grapes in this analogy are the earth dwellers, the unrepentant. Those who have continually and persistently refused to obey or acknowledge God. Those who have refused to follow Jesus are going to be crushed, as though crushed. Now, all of these pictures, all the symbolic imagery works together. The, the, the sword from the mouth, striking down the nations, ruling with a rod of iron, treading the wine press, these all work together to confirm, to, 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 to confirm and to prove, to make obvious for the world to see that this rider on the white horse is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He will bring judgment. But then the picture turns darker if that's possible oh there it is then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave both small and great So the angel standing in the sun, that's just likely a reference to, to uh, being in God's glory. It, it's a, uh, he's a messenger from the Lord, and, and he's about to reveal something significant. And his pronouncement is, come gather for the great supper. Now this is really interesting. We should not mix the, the juxtaposition of symbols here. I think the intentional contrast is being made between the outcome for the redeemed and the outcome for the unrepentant. Um, because the beginning of this chapter told us about a marriage feast. We started with a marriage feast for the bride of Christ, where, where she, where us as believers, we're going to be robed with fine linens, we're going to have this grand and elaborate feast, versus what we read here, an invitation for the birds of the air to come on down for supper. And what's being served? It's the flesh of the kings, the captains, the mighty men, horses, riders, I mean, presumably all these armies who are opposed to God. In fact, it's the, it says it's the flesh of all men, free and slave, small and great, will be served up. So in short, anyone and everyone who has served and followed the beast rather than serving and following Christ, they're going to be slaughtered. They're going to be ended. This is very radical imagery, to be sure, but they will be the feast. Two very different outcomes for two very different groups of people. 
And here's another Old Testament reference. Deuteronomy 28. <clears throat> Excuse me. Deuteronomy 28 is another chapter that compares the many blessings for those who follow God contrasted with curses for those who do not. So in the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy, read things like, uh, open to you, God will open to you his good treasury, bless the work of your hands, he will make you the head and not the tail, you shall go up and not down. 14 verses of God's blessing. And then we get to the end, and he lays out, oh, and for those of you who choose not to follow me, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. This laundry list of God's blessings, and then this list of curses. Powerful imagery aimed directly at the rebellious followers of the beast. And this is Deuteronomy, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. This is an old book. This goes back a ways. This has been true for a long time. God's been telling us this is what's going to happen. He's warned us from the beginning. This is what's going to happen when you, when you obey God. This is what's going to happen when you do not. And it's graphic. And people still ignore it. It also shows us that the, the, the lies and the delusion from the enemy are very great indeed. We have to be careful. We have to stay vigilant. The lies, the delusion, convince people that God is not real, that his word is not truth, and so they worship anything and everything else. And it leads to this. Now it feels like tension is building through these verses. When we get to the next section... 19 through 21, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I don't know how your mind works. I only know how mine, well, I kind of know how mine works. I don't really fully understand it, but I, I, I always tend to put this in some kind of like cinematic movie scene or something, right? And I, what I see here is like this the scene in Braveheart, you know, with the two battles lined up on both sides of the field. Or, or, or maybe more like the, the, the final scene, the, the return of the king, right? They have this massive, massive army of all the orcs and all the bad guys, and then this smaller group of good guys. But the scene is painted here of these two opposing armies lined up for battle. And, and I conjure this, it, it's a pretty impressive scene that the beast and all the kings of all the earth, along with all their armies, all lined up to wage war against the rider on the white horse and his armies. Now, his armies, we, the armies for the white horse, we believe are the saints, the perseverers, those who have been chosen, those who've been called. And we talked last week about the idea of being called or chosen. The ones who are invited to the marriage supper, many are called, but few are chosen. Right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So it seems, according to Scripture, there's going to be kind of a big army on one side and a slightly smaller group on the other side. The chosen and faithful are just going to be a smaller number. 
It's not hard to imagine this, this battle scene that's described here as wildly out of proportion. One army is significantly larger than the other. The army of the rider on the white horse is outmanned and outnumbered, but not, as it turns out, outgunned or outpowered. In fact, what follows is a description of probably the most anticlimactic battle scene ever. For centuries, this war has waged between God and Satan. It's a, it's a war for ultimate sovereignty, ultimate authority, a war where every man, woman, and child throughout time has been forced to choose sides. Are you going to serve God? Or are you going to serve Satan? I mean, that's the whole ballot. Those are your two choices. That's all you got. And that choice has led all people from all time to this moment. The army of Jesus must face the army of the dragon, and the army of Jesus is outnumbered, and the battle begins. Or does it? I mean, we've got this vivid imagery of battle lines being drawn up in verse 19, and we have all these popular cultural ideas of this grand battle working itself out in the heavens. But we're told about these armies lined up, and then verse 20 says, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. There's not one mention of a great battle. There's not one mention of a little skirmish. It doesn't even say anything about name-calling. The beast was captured along with the false prophet who was responsible for all the false signs and false teaching that led so many people astray. He directed people towards the worship of Satan rather than the worship of the beast, and that's it. They were captured. That seems less than satisfying. We want some big battle where they're all wiped out. Now, we'll get a little more information on this in chapter 20, but not a lot more. This, this big battle that's been building for generations, it seems just kind of underwhelming. So these two, the beast and the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Uh, and, and there's been this idea floating around for some time now, it's getting more popular again, that a good God would never condemn people to eternal punishment. So... Really what this must mean is there's something like absolute annihilation. You know, they're going to suffer for a little while, and then they're just going to be annihilated. They'll be, they'll be over and done. God certainly wouldn't cause them to be tortured forever. Unfortunately, I think that's just a case of wishing that to be the case rather than what Scripture actually says. We'll see this come up again before we finish out this book. But we're told that the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, but the rest of them, the rest of their armies, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse. They're over. And all this reinforces the proclamation of the angel who summoned the birds to come eat the flesh of the unrepentant. They're all wiped out, and now they're bird food. So there's, there's some discussion, there's some uncertainty about this, this scene. Is, is this a literal battle? Is this symbolic? I lean towards this being a symbolic understanding of the section. Uh, I believe this is giving us a glimpse of what is to come, or much like the rest of the book, it, it's a different perspective on what will happen and what has happened. This is obviously a scene of judgment. Those who lived a life opposed to God are now facing the consequences of that decision. In the next, very next chapter, we're going to read about the great white throne judgment. 
where every person is going to be judged by what's written in the book, whether or not their name is found in the book of life. So the judgment described here is a glimpse of what's to come. And notice it says these satanic satanic armies are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of the writer. Sword from the mouth is it's the word of God. It's the will of God. It's the sword of truth. It's God revealed word, God's revealed word for mankind. So the sense we're being given here is that they're going to be judged according to Scripture. By the standard of God's truth. And they're going to be found lacking. They were judged for being disobedient. Rather than maybe literally being chopped up with the sword from the mouth. And notice that the armies of the redeemed, all of those in fine linen on white horses, all the armies of the redeemed were all lined up on the side of Christ on the horse, and we are described as contributing nothing to this battle. We've done nothing except be present, look pretty sharp. The battle was won by Christ alone. In fact, from the moment of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, the battle was won. This is just a final scene. This is just the rest of history catching up. But we're included here. We're, we're, we're mentioned as being part of the army. Not just to make the picture more interesting. I mean, nobody would buy one guy against a big army. There's got to be we have a little army on one side. Right? It's not just to make the picture more interesting, but we're included because even though we don't play a role in this final battle for sovereignty, we are included as conquerors and overcomers because we've been fighting this battle against the dragon for a long time. Throughout our lifetimes, we are part of the army of Christ at this decisive moment because we put our trust and our faith in Christ. Because we've committed our lives to following Jesus. We've been trying to become more Christ-like. Some of us in this army are actually literally martyred for our faith, for refusing to reject or renounce our faith in Christ. Some of us in the army have suffered for his name. We've lost jobs. We've been heckled or called names. We've been falsely accused. We've suffered psychological, emotional attacks from the dragon. We have been sorely tempted And we all have our areas of weakness. We've struggled with idolatry, with making other things the most important thing in our life. We've struggled with idolatry about family and money and power and sex and identity and whatever it may be that distracts us from worshiping God fully. We've struggled. We've lost friends and loved ones because we're Christians. We've struggled with loss and loneliness and we have failed on so many of these points. And so then we struggle with the lies of the deceiver also who says, boy, you're just too messed up for Jesus. He can't possibly love you. I mean, I saw your rap sheet. Well done. God can't possibly forgive that catalog of sins. You say you love Jesus, but then you go and do that? I don't think so. He'll never forgive that. But our salvation is not based on some objective measure of successes and failures. 
our salvation is based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And even when we fail, we can find forgiveness. Even when we're weak, especially when we're weak, his strength is revealed for our benefit. We are part of this heavenly army because with our firm faith in Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, we have overcome. We just have to hold on to our faith and keep holding on. We are still on the front lines of this battle, but we know it's already won. So we just have to hold on a little longer. Let's pray. Lord, maybe it's just me, but I don't think it is. We, we continue to be amazed at the, the depth and the richness of your word. We continue to be amazed at how all of these disparate, different books written over thousands of years can all work together like this giant puzzle that we're, we're piecing together. And every time we, we put another piece in, we see more about who you are, more about what you've done for us, more appreciation for the God who created this world and who preordained an escape plan for us. And as dark as things look, as, as bleak as culture looks, even though it seems like we're lined up against this massive army, Lord, we win. We're on the side of faithful and true. We're on the side of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that as we leave this building this morning, as we go out into the, into the streets, into our workplaces, into our lives, Lord, that we remember that we are called and chosen and we need to be faithful. We need to hang on. We need to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. You have done so much for us. You will keep us faithful. You will keep us moving towards holiness if we just ask. Lord, be with us, encourage us, equip us, not just for our own sake, but so that we can impact the lives of other people around us. Lord, this, this depiction of the, the outcome for the two classes really should give us a, a real desire to reach the lost, those that we know and love who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Lord, give us a, a real desire to reach them. And I pray that you would show us how to do that. We thank you for how all of this has been revealed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.